I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. I've been struggling with a question. This is a just, hard... Just one? Oh, I have many is questions. This, is, is this the, the pinnacle? But this is a question that's recurring. It's okay. a question that keeps coming back, and I don't have a, a good answer for it. And it's one that I wonder if you guys can answer, too, because you're in the same boat I am as a grown-up. Are clowns inherently scary, <laughs> or is this something where we just throw all of our creepy-ass adult baggage on it, and it becomes creepy? Uh, we're in the middle of what I call the clown holocaust. Uh, are clowns being killed? The, the, I think the, the clown holocaust. Yes. Uh, th- what's happened is that uh, our popular conception of what clowns are, the first people's first reaction is to say scary. And so, the only type of clowns you have are horror movie clowns or the insane clown posse, which is also another form of apocalypse, I suppose. <laughs> There is a holocaust of clowns. People are not choosing, to, if they're going to be entertainers of the sort of carny variety, they will choose a juggler or they will choose a music, musician. If they are a funny person, they will choose to be a stand-up comic. Um, people are not becoming clowns. The clowns are disappearing from the earth, with the exception of ICP. We are, we <laughs> are going the middle... into space like the dolphins yes. in Hitchhiker's Guide? <laughs> yes. we, we have only rap clowns yes. that are like crypto christians yes. and who don't believe in how magnets work yeah. the real answer <laughs> yes we're in the we're at the 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 tail end of a clown holocaust there will no longer be clowns are you saying that if we don't take clowns back that only bad guys will have <laughs> <Yes>. clowns <laughs> so so here's the thing in my mind about clowns and i don't i don't know if this is 100% historically accurate but it used to be that People believed that there was a certain order to the cosmos, and I'm talking like Middle Ages here. You know, you, you that you had kings and you had peasants, and there were there was a qualitative difference between them, and you couldn't get away with insulting a king to their face. You couldn't do it. It was a distortion of the proper order of reality. But kings also needed to kind of have the piss taken out of them from time to time to have somebody talk shit to their face to kind of keep them grounded or to give them advice that they don't want to hear. And so there was a position in the court of the fool whose job it was for everybody to go, this person is an idiot and a fool and is fundamentally unserious. And therefore, it's okay for them to talk shit to the king because they're just a poor fool. They're innocent. They don't mean ill. They're not a threat. They're just a fool. And I think that clowns fit into that same kind of role, that they exist outside of the natural cosmic order, and that they're allowed to do things that normal people can't do, like jape and jump around and say silly songs and be something different from the ordinary everyday reality. And as a society, we've really moved past that kind of magical thinking where the need for clowns no longer exists in the way that it did, and yet they still exist, and so they're perceived as this weird other, this thing that is fundamentally out of place but does not have a discreet or acknowledged role in our reality. So they become villains. They're like Pennywise and the Joker. Yeah, like there's something like extra normal. 
you know, they don't they don't fit into reality right, and that is fundamentally creepy. Are we the the last generation? No, I think we're past the last generation that had positive interpretations of clowns. Hashtag representation matters <laughs> um, on television because I mean you look at like our parents. Our parents had J.P. Patches, and the people in the Midwest had like Bozo the Clown, and I think the closest thing we have is like Ronald McDonald, but. Clowns don't appear on things as positive characters, that they're always – and again, this is it. Is it – like, Casey, if you showed your kids a clown as a character, they wouldn't immediately think like white vans and kidnapped kids. No, I mean, but I think that they would think Joker, yeah. who's a homicidal maniac. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I think that peak clown was in the, like, 70s or maybe 80s at the very latest. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely we crossed the line and there just isn't enough clown anymore. <laughs> and we we probably have to move over to new laughter sources. <laughs> I mean, when I when I think of clowns, I think like killer clowns from outer space mm-hmm. or the Joker or it. Yeah. It's it's something monstrous, but again, that's that's the adult brain being the prism this stuff is shot through, which is I mean, I wonder if you just created a happy clown as a cartoon character. In a children's series, children don't. Yeah, Krusty was, I think, was the high water mark. I I would assume Krusty the cr- the clown. But yeah, Krusty also kind of represents a television show media genre that does not exist anymore, which is the right. hosted um, kids program that has like a peanut gallery and shows cartoons. Right. Um, it's weird because The Simpsons has also been around for like thirty years to the point that. To that, its detriment. <laughs> to its detriment, yeah. But, I mean, obviously. But, I mean, it's a sort of thing where, you know, that isn't a thing that people recognize anymore. Also, weirdly, is that Homer Simpson doesn't have a college degree and owns a house. So, <laughs> there you go, with, multi- with, with three kids. The Simpsons doesn't exist in a universe... It doesn't exist in the universe that it was conceived from yeah. anymore. A lot of the tropes that The Simpsons was a reaction to are not part of our current reality because the Simpsons killed them. Yeah. So it it's weird that is I imagine Krusty is still a character who has a show. Yeah. In the Simpsons. So I, that is I believe so. The only place where that character archetype really exists anymore. Is, is, the Simpsons is is worthy of its own topic in general, not just because it's like formative on our culture and because we reference it constantly and because everything references the Simpsons. Everything is inspired by it. But the idea that there is a nexus of sort of pre-internet time that uh, of separate time that the Simpsons exist in that most of people in our age, you know, from 30 to 50 or so, have probably seen and know by heart a good 90%, 80-90% of seasons 1 through 8 mm-hmm. and then everything after is a void. Like it it it's I don't think I I think it's without precedent that the lion's share of the series is by the people who love the Simpsons is not watched by it. <laughs> the people who cite the Simpsons as being their formative sort of cultural experience, most of them haven't seen most of it and will never. But I mean, again, I, when I grab something suddenly, I will say, yoink. Right. And, I mean, there's, <laughs> The Simpsons is, is smeared all over my brain. But to a millennial, The Simpsons has always existed. I mean, that is the weirdest thing to kind of come to grips with, is that for me, this was a, a, a television program that was created when I was in like fourth or fifth grade. 
And I remember that at the time, Bart was the character that they centered a lot of the stuff around. So Bart was on the t-shirts that were banned at my elementary school, you know, like underachiever and proud of it, which I had to wear at home because I couldn't bring it to school. But You couldn't and, be proud of, of it, could you? But it you? was controversial. Like the fucking president who talked smack about right. the Simpsons and right. stuff. And, you know, it was it was seen as transgressive. And it's weird that in a weird sort of way we've seen with the, the problem with Apu and all this stuff, that it's become oddly conservative. And I think that anything... I, are we about to quote Batman now? <laughs> you live long enough to become the villain? But um, <laughs> most things don't last that long. The, the problem with Apu is, is a unique problem because... Characters created at the time that The Simpsons were created were not controversial, that sort of took on these sort of stereotypes. But The Simpsons is this lone figure that has continually existed between all of these eras and endorsed that because a new program would not have that character and wouldn't have had that character for the past 20 years. The new character would have been voiced by Aziz Ansari and they would have given him more of a life that wasn't where he literally lived at the Quickie Mart all the time. And, that's and the all problem with the poo would be a different one when yeah. he was removed from the show for his like, creepy problems. Well, that, I mean, that's the thing about The Simpsons is if the show were created today, a poo wouldn't be a convenience store clerk. He would be a computer programmer. Right. Yeah. Right. Because the, 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 the show was was founded on these character character archetypes that existed at the time that don't exist anymore. It's weirdly fossilized in amber. And if you were trying to invent that show today, or if those characters had grown and changed and moved on to, let's say, a second generation, they would be a completely different set of archetypes. Yeah, because the characters don't age and everything sort of keeps that same structure, the same the same scaffolding of the show is still there. Is the character of Dr. Hibbert still around? Ooh, I don't think so. You know where I'm going with no, that. I know, yeah. So Dr. Hibbert, you know, the doctor on The Simpsons, who always wears a loud sweater and he's African-American and he's always kind of chuckling to himself. <laughs> the Simpsons, at, for a long time, was the the time slot rival of The Cosby Show. So Dr. Hibbert was a Cliff Huxtable character that was on their show. And I wonder, you know, do we really want a Bill Cosby character on <laughs> on The Simpsons anymore? And I imagine that he probably hasn't been shown in a long time. So they could they couldn't do what South Park did with Isaac Hayes's character. Oh, they wouldn't. Or, is it was it Isaac Hayes? Was yeah, that Isaac the guy Hayes? Who played where they straight up kill him off? No, they they, they killed him off because uh, Isaac Hayes did not approve of. Uh, the Scientology, the, the Scientology episode. episode that made fun of his religion. And so they decided to string together words from all of his performances to make Chef a child molester and then have him fall off a cliff and die at the very end, at the very end of the show. I was like, well, did, I, would Simpsons no. we <laughs> no. enough no. string together Dr. Hibbert, Hibbert and make him die in a grotesque way? No. They certainly wouldn't make him a child molester. No. For sure. No. I think that's just... By the way, the, the South Park guys is that Trey Parker and Matt Stone are one award away from an EGOT. Uh, they could do it. They, they can do, can and do it. And it's it's weird because it's all for music. I think I was looking this up. I was I was hanging out with my girlfriend Piper, and I was we were looking up EGOT winners and EGOT near misses. <laughs> and there's a lot of releases. I think uh, Mel Brooks is off by one. Um, I think uh, Julie Andrews is off by one. Who's a notable EGOT winner that has all four of them? Oh, um, like Rita Moreno's the name I hear a lot. Mm. She's been in stuff. She was, of course, in you know like. Um, West Side Story. She's also on a lot of a side recurring character on a lot of episodes of Rockford Files. So that's where I know her from. But um, there's a lot of folks that that have that. But of course, EGOT, if you don't know, it's somebody who's won the full collection of Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. 
And I really think it should be the ergot. I think they should include a Razzie in there. Yes. We want to get the full breadth of somebody's performance. I think everyone deserves a miss in there as well. I think Egort. <laughs> it should be Egort. So, like, Halle Berry has a Razzie and an Oscar. Wow. So she's got an or right now. There's there's somebody, and I want to say it's Sandra Bullock, that could be wrong, who won a Razzie and then won an Oscar the very next day. Oh, that's great. It had I, to have been Crash. I'm yeah, I, I'd have to look up what it was. It, it was it be, for the same role? Yeah, it could no. be possible that it was for Crash, that there were some people who saw what was coming down the line, coming down the road with that movie. The Razzie was actually voted on by time travelers that year. <laughs> we were like, yeah, that was a bad move, folks. But yeah, you know, you win a Grammy and a Tony together pretty easily because you've mm-hmm. got music in both of those. And Emmys, you know, is a little bit of a less prestigious award. You can get in there, you know, pretty easily. But that Oscar is a real hurdle. Yeah. And I think for the South Park guys, they came close. They were nominated for the last one. That was, of course, the Blame Canada song for the South Park movie. Uh, They didn't win it, but that probably would have been their chime. And I think the thing that will give them that in the future is undoubtedly going to be music. Is For all the plays and stuff, I think that they have kind of... They're like the Mark Millar of animation, (laughs) where I think there's a really talented person there, but they have a lot of bad habits and kind of edgelord bullshit that they fall back on a lot. I think that's very apt. Where they think like, oh, you believe something strongly, so you're stupid. Um, there's a lot of that in there, but they can also be remarkably clever at times. I mean, the good stuff is there, but I think their real strength has always been writing music. That the soundtrack to the South Park movie has no right to be as good as it is. The, I mean, the fact that they've they've gone on Broadway with a massive hit with Book of Mormon, and it's such a weird path of their career. Which, if they ever do a movie adaptation, will probably be the thing that wins them the Oscar. Yeah, yeah that finally, it finally yeah. happened. Oh my God! Yeah, I certainly think- Cannibal the Musical w- was never going to win them. The no, Oscar. not basketball. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's kind of weird that um, that's the place where they're at. Because I mean, when that show came out, it was even more transgressive than The Simpsons. Was. Yeah, and it's weird that it is also a show that has existed far beyond its kind of cultural moment. Like mm-hmm. it was something that was born of the 1990s and yet has managed to continue ex- to exist for more than 20 years. Yeah, people can but, vote and drink now who were born after that show came out. Yeah, and it's it's weird because that show without really changing has managed to evolve yeah. in a way that the Simpsons never has. I think that, that the, South Park, I'd say the same problem with South Park is with the Simpsons is that for a good majority of people, they have not seen the vast majority of the show, but would still consider themselves to be nominal South Park fans. Yeah. You have seen, Oh, I saw the, oh, the first three or four years or whatever. And most of it you haven't seen. So what is a fan? I know that our, our friend Rob Kelly does all the wonderful art on our show and does a lot of podcasting himself has said this about Indiana Jones is that he really only likes Raiders of the Lost Ark. He doesn't like any of the Indiana Jones sequels. Is he an Indiana Jones fan or a Raiders fan? So what is a fan? I, cause I don't know if there's an answer. I, I have always hated the word fan. I, I have hated this idea that there is a fandom or a group of people who are the fans who have some level of ownership entitlement. Yeah. Over a particular media property or work who kind of have some say in what is canon or what is true about that thing. Uh, and that, I think is especially true with the Star Wars oh god films especially the last Jedi has kind of divided people who are big fans 
if you will, of Star Wars really being split into two camps, you know, the people who loved it and the people who hated it. And like this idea that one of them is going to be right. Nobody's going to win. No, I mean, no, you know who wins? Disney. Yeah. That's who wins. Ultimately, because they're the ones that I mean, and I don't know. I just the, the entitlement of fans is sort of the thing that I just I get so tired of where the absurd and, and vile behavior that people can t- participate in, like whether it's uh, the woman who played Rose Tico getting harassed off of Twitter. It's like, what the fuck are we doing? You know, I, just, I love that movie. But even if it was a bad character, badly acted, even if um, why are you harassing an actor? I think I think where it boils down for me is that to call yourself a fan of something, you have to define part of your identity as I am a person who enjoys this thing. Mm-hmm. And when that is a living document, when there are still people who are creating that thing, who may create something that you don't like, you then see that as an assault on your identity. Yeah. And I think that that is a toxic mentality to have. But especially you're basing your identity entirely off of what somebody else is doing. Yeah. I I guess I'll say that I think the thing that makes it less, more gray, I guess now, is that I'm a fan of a lot of things. Um, You know, there's not... uh, I don't go to Star Wars Celebration or whatever and, like, burst into tears because you see the teaser for the new you know for solo or whatever i i'm not or i'm not like a seahawks yellow seahawks fan and dress up like my favorite superhero i mean the professional sports player i'm a fan of a lot of different things and not of any one particular thing and i think for most people who consume media who have their own preferred forms of escapism are fans of lots of different things and maybe it's just a different world because the uh, the ver- the variety of entertainment, the breadth of entertainment available to us is so huge, is so overwhelmingly huge. It's not just like, well, you're either a Star Wars fan or a Star Trek fan, mm-hmm. and living that and in and making that your all encompassing sort of like, I'm going to know what this is and I'm going to be the master of it. It's not that way anymore. But People that, are far more interested in lots of different things. But that sort of either or nerd partisanship is just always so strange to me because I've never really bought into it. Even when I was a kid, it's like, I like Star Trek and Star Wars. I don't know why this is an or. And the only reason we compare them is because they have the same word <laughs> in the beginning of their titles. Well, That's there, it. There was a long period of time where if you wanted to look for science fiction in film or television, those were your options. Mm-hmm. Battlestar Galactica was not an option to anybody who might be saying that to themselves. <laughs> not on the table. I'm sorry. Um, I had I had a follow up to that and it just went completely out of my brain. That's all right. I, it's just we, uh, you know, only when Disney buys Paramount and then it's Disney making Star Wars and Star Trek will. No, even then though, even then, yeah, I, I just don't know. you know, JJ uh, Abrams steamrolled all over both of those, so it, they it ma- stink like him now. I guess it makes me sad, but at the same time, I think I saw something fairly recently because the latest piece of bullshit fan partisanship that's also deeply marinated in a lot of ugly social beliefs was that people were trying to start a fight between the two Captain Marvel movies that were coming out. Uh. One, I think it's fucking hilarious that of all the times that two movies with these characters could come out in practically the same month and they both have Jaman Hansu in both of them. (laughs) Um, That is weird, but what are the odds of that? But, um, (laughs) 
that people are trying to start a fight between these two things. And you know, the only people who can have a fight between those two things legitimately are Marvel and DC. And you're not, you're not going to get into a fight where you're battlefield, but really you just say girls aren't allowed to share my shit. And that's really what a lot of some of those people are against. It's like, you can like both of these movies and that's the weird thing with it. I, I also, this is just a random aside, and I, I'm only throwing this out there because I know that Tobias probably on my side on this. I don't understand why can't, we can't have more than one Captain Marvel. I really don't. <laughs> we have more than one Sandman. That's we have true. more than one DC Sandman. <laughs> I, I don't know why it's a problem to get this shit mixed up. Because trademarks are a thing. Ugh, and because there's money. That's ultimately yeah. what it comes down to, is that DC can't put out media that says Captain Marvel on it. Yeah, it just... That that's the fandom thing that I also don't like. I, I was I think I, if I was a fan of something first, it probably was Star Trek, and I've been to one Star Trek convention, and I was a teenager at the time, and it became completely evident even before I went to any comic book convention that like fan as it was sort of a thing that was uh, a marketable enough cachet to be able to move to do things like a convention was merely like, are you a consumer who will buy these products? And I really think that uh, we should just like, we could just abandon that altogether because you can like something without feeling like I feel obligated that the next set of toys that I don't know whoever owns the, the for Star Wars now, I have to buy each and every one of them. Yeah. You know, like we... You can love something and not be that, that means I have to sort of slavishly consume and defend, uh, you know, defend the, the rights holders, the corporations who hold these rights. The one, my biggest, this is the last thing I'll say on this um, the poor reception of the solo movie that was, it was a lo- like lots of the other sort of Star Wars properties after J.J. Abrams, subject to some brigading on the internet. And Ron Howard comes out after the movie is uh, this is months after the movie is out, and where there's stories about how brigaders used some bots to tank some ratings on various rating sites to try to you know tarnish the reputation of Solo, and it became this oh I'm I you know uh, he wanted people to rally around the fact that yes by liking Solo and saying how much you like Solo you mean how you oppose all of these edge lord assholes and oh, you're like. You're no. like, but you know what? It doesn't make the movie better. Well, it does come, not make the movie Come to the aid better. of a corporation bec- it, where you just become some variation of Trump supporters in that point where you don't are actually for anything. You're just for owning the libs or whatever your equivalent of the libs are. It's like, I'm going to show that, that sexist asshole something by buying a bunch of Disney-owned memorabilia. It's like, how about I just argue with him and show him that he's a fucking asshole? I don't have to <laughs> buy a bunch of this corporate shit. To, to oppose this person. And this this has been a huge problem in the comics industry for a very long time because their entire sales model is predicated on people going to their local comic store every week and shelling out four or five dollars for a number of floppy books that most of which will just immediately lose all of their value. Mm-hmm. But they they base their decisions on what keeps getting published based on the sales of these books, and particularly sales of things like special variant yeah, covers yeah. that are only available in certain ratios if your comic book store orders so many copies yeah, of yeah. them. Yeah, and by the way, the sales figures are the comic book store, not the buyer. Right. So and, you have to buy, you basically basically get to pad your numbers to get that variant thing that one of your customers will pay you $20 for. Right. And you get and, a bunch of fucking paper you can't sell. 
And then they come out and they say, well, this book that's a critical darling is only selling X number of copies. And so we're going to cancel it unless everybody goes out and buys it in this one particular format because we're not going to count trade sales and we're not going to count digital sales. We're only going to count it in this one particular way that makes us the most money. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to support that business model you don't truly like or care about comic books and, and seen, you are killing the industry. I've seen creators mouth that shit. And yeah, and that is an exact quote from both creators and from the executives at Marvel. If you don't buy this, you're killing the industry. See, that's that same this again, this is about me to start my socialist rant here, but it's that same thing. I thought it was where, your trade waiter. It's rant. that same <laughs> bullshit thing saying like your boss is the job creator. It's like, no, if I don't show up to work you don't have a job either. If you don't show up to work, I think the rest of us can fucking figure it out. <laughs> it's it's that same bullshit. All you do is own things for a living. And that's Marvel saying, oh, you better do this or we're going to pull the plug. It's like, fuck you. You're owned by Disney. They have more money than God. This is a drop in the giant corporate bucket of that massive, uh, massive yeah. company. I'm pretty sure the last movie that Marvel put out of the three that they put out in the last year made more money than the entire comics industry. Oh, sure. So if you're trading, like, say, the Carol Danvers Captain Marvel comics as an investment, saying, I spent this much money to print this many paper comics of this character in these stories, and I didn't make a huge amount other than that, well, you know what? It turned out it was a huge fucking return on your investment. You made more than a billion fucking dollars on a Carol Danvers movie. So, yeah, that's exactly how these, these corporations look at it. It's like, yeah, this is a, an IP farm. This is a way because there's a lot less commitment into making a comic in terms of taking risks than there is a movie because it's like there's fewer people making a comic. You can you can take a bigger risk doing weirder shit. And uh, you can also try things out and see how it is. And now when you make it as a movie, people are like, oh, I recognize this thing. So, so you have a built-in fan base already. You were telling me in preparation for our previous Spider-Man panel that um, I could sort of sign up for the Marvel, have the Marvel version of their sort of subscription service. Yeah, Marvel Unlimited. And uh, is it truly unlimited is the question. Do it's they pretty fucking close. Do they, uh... they have their whole catalog? And are you able to read the the in the week that the book comes out are you able to read it or not in the week of okay. no, I believe it's a six month delay yeah uh... that way they have to make their money on that so otherwise everyone would do this right. so I think yeah and the thing is that if Marvel offered a truly unlimited platform where day of in the store I could read online I would 100% give them the $10 a month or whatever it yeah. is they want to charge that for that. That would murder comic book stores but, even and, more and so than the they already are. the problem is that the, <laughs> the, the big players, Marvel, DC, and Diamond, have created this monster for themselves where there's about 1,500 comic book stores in this country that are dependent for their existence on Marvel and DC and the sales from those books. Everything else aside, and... No one has the will to make a change to the way that the industry does its business to make it more sustainable, to make it so that more people can actually make a living off of producing comic books, because it would be a huge disruption to those stores. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody's willing to pull the trigger on that. And as much as I love comic book stores, some of my friends own comic book stores, and I desperately would not want them to lose their business. It's not healthy for comic books as an artistic endeavor. To only be there. To only exist yeah. in these specialty shops. And of course, a lot of independent creators are completely bypassing this system at this point. They're putting their works online for free to get an audience. And then they're going the Patreon model. 
They're going the Kickstarter model where once they have enough pages to produce a book, they put it out and they make $150,000 and produce a run of print comics, which they then both can give to their customers and can continue to sell for months or years afterwards. But it's also the, the comic book store monopoly, the idea that only this kind of retailer has access to this medium of storytelling it keeps it small. And the places where there's been growth in comic books that you get these crossover hits, it's not going to be with floppies and it's not going to be in comic book stores. It's things like scholastic book fairs. It's things like bookshops. It's things to put comic books in front of people who wouldn't seal them otherwise because there's a lot of gatekeepy bullshit in a lot of those 1500 stores. Um, there's some great comic book stores out there, by the way. I mean, the the folks that we know, like... Um, uh, Gabby down in Olympia has an amazing store. That is like a that is like a magical store that exists in another universe. Uh, but there are stores out there that are on the opposite end of that spectrum that look like the gun store in Grand Theft Auto Four, <laughs> where it just you feel uncomfortable walking in there. And I'm a white dude, so if I feel bad, um, how bad is this anywhere else? If I was a woman, I couldn't imagine walking into some of those shops because it feels like you're you're doing an arms deal. Except there's pictures of fucking Spider-Man on the wall. So I've, I've to. This is a similar. I'm going to take a tangent. I feel like we've had a fun size episode where we talked about this. Yeah, we particular have, thing with Tobiah. Yeah, on okay, before. so we're, we're beating a horse again. It's fine. We, okay. every, we if you don't, if you've never heard it before, go listen to the fun size episode after we did Akira, and I'm pretty sure okay. that I had to leave the room not because I was fed up with what you guys were saying, but because like I had a kid yeah. thing to deal with, and you guys were talking about it for like an exactly hour. this. So yeah, we this <laughs> dead horse very sticks. likely true. Yeah, we dig. Dead horse. Similar thing, similar thought. I was, th- like, arcades. Arcades, they're kind of a dead thing now. It, it, Except it, for retro arcades. The, and here's the thing, retro arcades are solely the purview of bars now. Mm-hmm. So uh, not too far, I'm very, very lucky, not too far away, within stumbling distance of my house, I can cross through the park diagonally, and there's a barcade in West Seattle, where I live, <clears throat> up until six months ago. Uh, on the weekends during af- like after 12 o'clock, after 12 o'clock noon, there was a front area where they had f- free uh, games and you could come in and the kids could play. They had a bunch of superhero toys, a bunch of uh, arcades on free play. They did popcorn and hot dogs and stuff, and it was great. Yeah. Um, my my five-year-old loved to go there. And uh, then they closed that door and they didn't open the front door on weekends during the day. They only had their back bar with where all the machines were. And I eventually found out that um, there's just some issue with uh, having a bar, a part of a bar with video games because there are still laws left over about gambling machines, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. So they had to close it, essentially. Um, now the only arcades that I know of that aren't Dave and Buster's, um, and they're holding on, I think, because... The Japanese, uh, the Japanese uh, investors at Sega can still keep them open. I don't know how. Does Sega own Dave and Buster's? Yeah. Or oh no, uh, no. Sega owns. Oh, f- not the, Dave and Buster's. The other one, the one that the yeah. game something. Yeah, some yeah, whatever. The one that's in downtown Seattle at like it's next to the movie theater. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, they the, they exist. I think on some other model, but mostly game works. Most of them are bars. It's the sale of alcohol that allows you to have a space, a huge space and fill it with like giant wood boxes that have CRT monitors in them. But you're also sad because I uh, like me and our, our host of the, or former panelist of the show, Patrick Johnson love to go play, um, killer queen, which I don't know if either of you've heard of this, this game. It's a, 10 player arcade game. Holy it's a five cow. on five arcade game that's basically it's joust essentially 
with uh with five players and it's extremely competitive and the whole thing is a is a is conceived of to get people to meet one another like when you, in between matches the game tells you to meet your neighbor essentially because it wants you to, to bring people into a social space and talk to them and uh patrick and i've been in a couple different places in seattle that have them and they're all in bars so if my kid wants to uh play this game he has to age himself magically fifteen years. Shazam! Yeah, because he has to Shazam <laughs> to get there, and it's kind of it's kind of sad. Like I love the I love the people who have the dedication to keep arcade games up and running, and arcades as a place were something that were awesome as a kid. As I'm sure comic book stores for you were both mm-hmm. sort of a magical place where you found what it is that you liked, and you met people there and felt like you were in your element. But I think a lot of it too is that comic book stores for our generation are a different place than what they were when we started. Not just because they're more inclusive than they used to be and less creepy than they used to be, but um, I didn't have any comic book friends growing up. I didn't know anyone else who was into it. It was like my private thing. And if I ever had a conversation about comic books, it was standing in line at a convention because I never met any of these people. I remember, um, I think it was at one of the Comic-Cons. I forget which one, but I was standing in line. And I don't know how the conversation started with the person in line in front of me. We were talking about Hawkman. And where the fuck else is that going to happen? <laughs> and uh, we were talking about, well, why does Hawkman hang that mace on his belt from the handle? Because that shit's going to be banging into his thigh. <laughs> and there's like bumps on that thing. That looks like that would bang the fuck out of your thigh. And um, I think it was Stephen Sadowski, the artist of JSA at the time, was signing. And we were in his line. He turned around and he just goes, I think about that shit all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for for me growing up, you know, I grew up out in rural Pennsylvania, so there was no comic book store that I could just walk to. It was a 30-minute drive to the closest one and a 45-minute drive to the second closest one. Oh, yeah. And so we would, like, try and make the rounds and hit, like, the two or three closest comic book stores, like, once every couple of months. Um, And so it it wasn't the social activity that I, I think that you're maybe imagining um, a lot of my socialization again came at science fiction conventions that I was going to with my parents where there would be a dedicated game room set up and I would just go to the game room and hang out and eventually somebody would start playing a board game and I'd kind of do that kid thing where you kind of edge slowly closer until somebody's <laughs> like do you want to play yeah. with us I'm like yeah yeah uh, can I and they're like yeah come come play with us um, and that was that was how I met geeks all of the mm. you know, the time that I was growing up. Um, but I think that the arcades are one of those things, much like the Simpsons we were talking about, where it is an artifact of another era. Yeah, yeah it the, is. the the economics are not there in a way to make it a viable thing in and of itself. And consoles are a bigger. You can play those exact caliber of games on consoles where there used to be a, a sharp divide on how good a game console at home could be versus an arcade machine. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm kind of glad that the barcades exist if for no other reason to to maintain some vestige of what the arcades yeah. of old were. Mm-hmm. You know, even talking about like the restaurant industry, tons of restaurants are not profitable based on the food that they sell. They make their money on alcohol sales. You know, especially wine. Um, and so if the alcohol can be that loss or, you know, if the video games are the loss leader to get people in the door to buy the alcohol that keeps the business in business, I am 100 percent OK with that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I have I have a bit of a question for you guys. Maybe yeah. this is a good way to close out this conversation. But um, our friend Rob Kelly, who we mentioned before, has a podcast called Film and Water Podcast. And on there, he was talking about awful movie theater experiences. And he had a whole discussion with a friend of his who had managed a movie theater in the past. And here's the, the open question to throw to you guys, which is you're at a movie theater and someone's on their fucking phone and they're like, he went to Captain Marvel and the person was so bad that they actually took a call uh, oh, during the movie. Nice. Their kids were running up and down the aisles. I mean, it was like a, imagine the worst case nightmare that you could come up with for this sorts of person. But you know that complaining to somebody means you're missing a chunk of the movie and it's probably not going to correct their behavior. If we're going to start from scratch with the movie theater experience, how do we make it possible to not – is there a way that we can come up with a way to complain without getting out of our seat or having somebody abuse a button on a chair or yeah. something? Like, How do we solve this problem? I, I, I don't know that there is a solution. You, well, Alamo Drafthouse solved that problem. They, uh, they, they just have a zero-tolerance uh, uh like behave towards that kind of behavior they not only do they go out of their way when um the ushers will look in after the movie started and see if phones are still on or see if people are talking and they will aggressively find people who are not keeping the experience quiet and not distracted not only that but people who call in and leave uh, voicemails on their phone and complain about being kicked out they will put that as a leader in front of the movie to make fun of them to basically if you do this if you come in here know that we are going to kick you out and if you try to call us and harass us we will put it on screen so everyone laughs at you so it works for alamo draft house it's a it is a amazing experience i i hope that they will eventually will have one in seattle because they not only do that they they have better movie houses than everyone they have their own film festivals and they get bring a lot of stuff that other uh chains the amcs and the regals won't show um but that's the way you do it is just create a culture of humiliation dox the shit out of them mike yeah pretty much i mean there's not there's not a technical solution because the thing that you need is the opprobrium of the masses you need as a society to say this is not okay and if you violate this very fundamental social moray you are going to pay a price for that. It just, it, it feels like the, the solution that I've had and Rob brings this up, but I, as a former movie theater employee myself, usually the movie theater's solution to everything is just throw passes at everybody. Free passes at everyone. Come back later. Hope that guy isn't there. It would be <laughs> fucking hilarious if that same person came back with their free pass to that same show. Like, God damn it. You can't escape them. But yeah, I, I think it it's like a cultural change. But I kind of wonder about the person who is on their phone through a movie that they paid $12 to see. I mean. You could just sit at home and watch Netflix and be on your phone. You could sit almost anywhere cold and and uh, and air conditioned. That's better than that theater because you don't have a giant speaker shooting stuff. You know, I I gave up trying to understand what people are thinking a very long time ago. I've worked enough customer service jobs to know that there is no good answer to that question. Uh, but I would love to very briefly tell the story of the worst experience I ever had in a movie theater, um, where a friend of mine gave a pass away to an underprivileged child. Uh, who came with his whole family uh, and it was a mom and a dad and the one kid and then a second younger kid who was playing on an iPad through the first like 45 minutes of oh, the no. movie with the sound on oh, no. as my brother who is sitting next to me is getting increasingly irate and upset and we keep gl- like glancing over them and you know going shh 
and you know all the things that you do like that slow escalation and eventually my brother just turns to them and is like you need to shut the ipad off and she turns and she's like he's autistic and so first of all why are you bringing a small child to this movie Second of all, why are you bringing an autistic child to this movie if you know for a fact that this is like a problem that they have where they need to have this thing that is disruptive to everybody mm-hmm. to get through that environment? Without headphones. Without headphones. And of course, my brother just stares her dead in the eye and he's like, I'm autistic, <laughs> <laughs> which he is. And that is the moment that they finally were like, okay, fine, like get it shut down. Shut it down. Not a single problem throughout the entire movie with the kid. Hmm. Hmm. It oh, was man. it was insane. Uh, as a parent, just don't bring your young children to the movie theater. If you know, if you've, one parent has to sacrifice by staying home and looking after the kids, like that's just what you got to do. Well, what's the cutoff age? When is it appropriate to bring them to a movie theater? It depends. Uh, probably after five. The I'd point say after five. The point at which they can sit quietly for two hours. Because yeah. like, I've I've heard babies crying in some of the most inappropriate <laughs> movies. <laughs> And I'm like, I am, I, I, what was it? I, I did, like, it comes at night was one. I was like, <laughs> what the fuck is happening? I did. I will say uh, that I did take my infant son to go watch Red Sparrow, which seems like a terrible choice, except when you know that the movie theater next to me has the mommy mornings where you, you if you're a parent who stay at home, they'll go and you can watch a movie for like half price with the lights are mostly up and the sound is mostly down and you can watch a show while your kid sleeps or whatever which is what they did i saw saw two movies that way one of them was solo one of them was red sparrow there were a lot of people in solo i was the only one in red sparrow with an infant but that was, was fine i wonder about that because i mean i wonder what a child like a, a baby thinks is happening when they're in a movie theater <laughs> yeah, that's got to be pretty fucking scary it's like fucking Alex DeLarge type <laughs> shit like what do they think is happening they're just being bombarded with these sounds and, um, yeah, just don't bring babies to things, um, <laughs> at all. <laughs> it's no, um, yeah, I, I guess I'm just one of those people. I'm not a parent. I'm never going to be a parent. I have a, a very low tolerance for a lot of things. And the beautiful thing with that children is I can always walk away from them and not come back. Uh, if I'm just like, nope, I'm, I'm tapped out. It's kind of, it's like a <laughs> poker game. I just, I fold. I'm done. <laughs> Good luck, folks. But yeah, um, so yeah, that's the thing with movie theater. Do you think the Alamo Drafthouse model is something you can universalize or people revolt? I don't think an AMC, a corporate conglomerate international movie theater will never do that, though. They'll never have a policy that might make people want to sue them, right? So there would be the zero, there would be a zero tolerance on that shit. And plus, what, at the AMC, you have like 14-year-olds working there or like 16-year-olds. Those people don't want to go shout down a like a 47 year old man no for being loud in a movie theater they really don't um though there is a thing i will tell this story about working in a movie theater and this was effective there were um i I, this was like the late 90s i don't even remember what movie this was happening in but i was at work and uh these two nine to twelve ish age girls were throwing shit like you know sour patch kids at people in a movie theater and those are the worst fucking kids. That's uh. the worst age for children to be because that's that one where you tell them to knock it the fuck off and adults aren't scary anymore. So it's like, and you're just like, that's the most impotently angry you ever feel <laughs> where you want to strike a child, but you can't. And you're just like, 
<laughs> and you can't do anything. So um, what happened was uh, we had someone pull them both out of the theater. And uh, my manager, she came up with the master stroke, which was she told both of them, I'm calling your parents. Sit on that bench over there. And she walks into the office. My manager doesn't know who her parents are. <laughs> um, but you give them five minutes of sitting there. And it's like a police station to them. They don't know. <laughs> and these two little girls just started crying. Oh. <laughs> and you give them about five minutes of that. And then my manager, who's just been hanging out in the office, I think I went in there like, what's going on? And they're like, yeah, give them time. And I walked back out and did that like sad head shake at them <laughs> when I walked past. And like, oh, man, it's bitty bad in there. And... um <laughs> And then about five minutes later, my manager came out and said, you should go home. And they were both, they go out of there in tears and they're probably going to go home and confess. <laughs> then that's, that's a problem that's, that's solved. That's a master adult move. <laughs> Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. enjoy treating your customers like a piece of shit because that's how I felt when I went to the Alamo Draft House. Okay? You know what? I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to text in your little crappy ass theater. It was too fucking dark in that place for me to find my seat. Alright? I was using my phone as a flashlight to get to my fucking seat. So excuse me for using my phone in USA, United States of America, where you are free to text in a theater. I was not aware that I couldn't text in your theater, all right? I've texted in all the other theaters in Austin, and no one ever gave a fuck about what me I was doing my fucking phone, all right? And it was on silent. It wasn't on loud. It wasn't bothering anybody. You guys, obviously, were being assholes to me. And I'm sure that's what you do, you know, to rip people off. You take my money, and then you throw me out. You know, I will never be coming back to your Alamo Draft House or whatever. I'd rather go to a regular theater where people are actually polite. And, you know, I'm going to tell everyone about how shitty you are. And I'm pretty sure you guys are being assholes on purpose. So thanks for making me feel like a customer. Thanks for taking my money, asshole.